All right, let's start. This is Matthew 23:24. I titled this week, One More Thing Before I Go. This is kind of his last of the five. Remember, Matthew was written with five public teachings. This is the last of the public teachings. Uh, and then he switched, halfway through today, he'll switch to private teaching. Uh, and remember, in the book of Matthew, written depending on who you believe, either in the late 60s or the 70s or the 80s. There are four basic parties of Jews, if you will, Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, and Essenes. Uh, Examples of Essenes, John the Baptist would have been seen as an Essene. Uh, The early church has a lot of very Essene-like characteristics. The Essenes were the people who thought the Pharisees were too liberal. They actually started the original party together, and the Essenes broke off because the Pharisees were too liberal, which is hard to believe. Uh, the Zealots are the people, that, they're the nationalists. Uh, of the 12 apostles, there's good evidence that three of them were Zealots. Simon the Zealot is really easy to be a Zealot because that's his name. Uh, Judas Iscariot very likely was also a zealot. There's another interpretation of his last name, Iscariot. Remember, our names that we get for all these guys start in Hebrew, go to uh, Greek, go to Latin, go to English. Uh, There is an interpretation of Iscariot that is uh, Scarisi, which is Latin for rebel. So Judas may have been a, which also, when you get into what he does, may explain why he does. And then Peter very likely could have been a zealot. Because think about it. Who's the only guy that's got a sword in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane? Peter. That's not like a walking around thing, like, oh, I got my sword on today. Uh, So he's also a horrible zealot because he can't hit the guy he aims at. And he brings a sword to a spear fight because all the guards would have been carrying spears. So like Peter, he's very impulsive and he does lots of things without necessarily thinking ahead of time. That's another one. Uh, the Pharisees, uh, you know, we're talking about, we'll talk about this week. Paul and Gamaliel are very examples that the early church at this time when this book was written would be very familiar with. And the Sadducees, we've seen off and on. We're about to get introduced to Annas and Caiaphas in the ne- not t- in this week, but next week. All right. And let's start, as always, with the Shema. Everyone stand. And I know, Bob, I'm not doing it. Call and response. Can't, can't do it in Hebrew. Uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Have a seat. All right. A little geographic review. Last week we left Jesus in the temple. He's, you know, this is on Tuesday. He is... Uh, Monday, uh, Sunday he comes into the city. Monday he cleans the temple out. Tuesday he's back in the temple. He's teaching. Uh, and we left him there. Uh, the Sadducees try to, skit, try to get him hooked up on things. He embarrasses the Sadducees. So the Pharisees take a shot. And you remember the very last verse that we looked at in chapter 22 was, nobody dared ask him a question again because they were all embarrassed so bad they quit asking him questions, trying to trip him up. 
And the, and the questions they asked were all about uh, trying to peel off. John the Baptist was very, uh, a lot of the Essenes followed him. So when Jesus comes down, a lot of the Essenes become Jesus' disciples and some of the zealots. And so they're trying to peel off part of his following by asking questions like, for instance, uh, you know, the Caesar question, you know, do you pay taxes to Caesar? The Essenes would not have paid taxes to Caesar because they are, they are we, we're, we live by ourselves. The zealots definitely would not have paid taxes to Caesar if they could avoid it. So that's the Pharisees trying to peel off those followers. And Jesus answers the question in such a way that uh, obviously the, the Pharisees quit asking the questions. So the beginning of this week, uh, I have your keys. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so the beginning of this week, uh, 23rd chapter, uh, warning against hypocrisy. That actually is not in the original, by the way, Matthew did not write that heading. The headings are added in there. It's a good heading, though, because as you get into this week, you'll see it's all about hypocrisy. Uh, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, so he's still in the temple. Remember, this is Passover. You have thousands of people in the temple, and Jesus is teaching. The Pharisees are there. The Sadducees are there. All the leaders are in the temple because this is running up to Passover week. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. So right now the Pharisees are pretty happy after that comment. But don't do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Uh, the... The word Moses' seat here is in uh, synagogues. There, there, there's two ways to interpret this. One is in the synagogue, there actually is a seat that where the teacher sits. Remember in those days when the teachers sat, they didn't stand. It was the opposite of what we're doing today. If we were truly Jewish, I'd be sitting, you'd all be standing. Uh, because that, that's how they did it. Uh, and then the other thought is that Moses, remember, Jesus, one of the themes of the book of Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. And so Moses was the man who brought the law from God to the people. So that the Pharisees are, teachers of the law and the Pharisees are see, are see themselves as the inheritors of Moses' authority. So that they can tell people what to do. And then Jesus is very clear because the Pharisees very much worshipped Scripture. You had to memorize a large amount. They studied it all the time. They talked about it all the time. And so Jesus is very careful to say, that's not wrong. So he says, careful to do everything they tell you because they're right. It's just that they're, they're hypocrites. If you go all the way back to his first public teaching, Sermon on the Mount, the worst thing you could be, a hypocrite. Uh, and so he's basically telling them that. They don't, they don't do what they tell you to do. What they tell you to do is right. They just don't do it. Everything they do is done for people to see. 
They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long, for they love the place of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. Uh, the phylactery is, if you look at these verses, it talks about keeping the word of God on your head, on your forehead, and on your, on your arms as you go through life. And so, and this time, and even today, I mean, if you know Orthodox Jews, they will wear phylacteries, and especially as you get towards Passover, where uh, they have, especially they'll have a lot of these verses here, as you remember, this is the Shema, uh, in the phylactery, so it, it's physically on their head uh, and wrapped around them. And so what they did is uh, they would make their phylacteries really showy. So it, you can make them and keep them under your gown, or you can go, you know, the... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a uh, like a brand. What's the, D, the DC, DG? What purse is that? Dolce Gabbana. Right. So you could make your phylacteries. I, I love the fact that she's going like I, I don't know he knew that. That's right. That's right. There you go. So uh, they, they would wear the equivalent of that so that they'd be big and show. And, you know, you could make your boxes small, you could make them large. They'd make them large, they'd make the straps really wide so you could see, I am a Jew, look at this. And you'd have them wrapped around your arm. Uh, and then on your uh, garments, uh, a tassel was, was to remind you of the word of God. And so they would... They would make really long tassels, really showy tassels. And it was all about, so people could see him go, oh, he's a Pharisee. Oh, he's a teacher of the law. We really, you know, I, I want respect. Because what they wanted was place of honor at the banquets. And, you know, what has Jesus already ta talked about in his earlier teachings? When you go in, don't sit in that seat of honor. Sit in a lower seat. Be you know, you're the man who's going to be in charge is the one who's the servant. And these guys are exactly the opposite. And, and earlier in the uh, book of Matthew, he talks a lot in parable. He's not talking in parable here. He is just, as, as, we, as we say, he's preaching it out, right? He's like, guys, listen, listen. I'm, he's not hiding anything here. And uh, then he goes on and says, you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest of you will be your servant for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So here, so remember we talked about the underlying philosophy is prosperity theology. So rich is good, poor is bad. Rich is gifted by God, poor is uh, being humbled by God. Jesus just flipped everything so that everyone wanted to be these guys, because you know when you, 
at a, when they had banquets, you would seat them according to uh, social rank, if you will. So the, the important people are up on the, the, da the dais with you, and everyone else is down on the sides. And so what Jesus is saying is the exact opposite of that. Be the servant. And he's going to, in two couple chapters, he's going to do that at the Last Supper. He's going to become the servant. Uh, but he is really teaching people. This, this is still public teaching here. So he's really teaching people. So they're starting to flip what they're expecting uh, for his teaching. Any questions about or comments? Now, if, if you're like me and a lifelong Church of Christer, uh, this is where, call no one father, uh, we, growing up, I grew up in the North, was very Catholic, and so everyone talked about, oh, you can't really call the priest father. This is actually where they get this from. Don't call anyone father. Uh, what he's saying here is, rabbi means teacher, but at this point in, in history, rabbi was more than teacher. It was, it was uh, generally interpreted as my master. So what he's trying to tell people is, uh, you have one master, and that is God. It's not your local rabbi. And when, we, when they're saying rabbi here, what they're saying is master. So they want people to, to recognize them for, oh, this guy's really, really smart. So he's going to, you know, when we have a party, I'm inviting him, I'm putting him up front. Uh, and so when they walk in the marketplace, oh, master, basically saying master, master, rabbi, rabbi. All right, now we roll to the seven woes. Uh, Jesus has issues with lots of people. He really, really, really has issues with the Pharisees. As you can tell, what's the worst thing that he says you can be? A hypocrite, which is... Uh, the interesting part of this is the word hypocrite, there is no word in Arabic or Arabic, Aramaic or Hebrew for hypocrite. It's a Greek word. So when Jesus, who's in the temple at this time, is probably speaking Hebrew because you're in the middle of the temple, the middle of Passover, he actually uses a Greek word that everybody knows. It's kind of like, uh, uh, I don't if you've been to another country and they start talking and... Uh, you get to a word like computer. Uh, when we go to Africa, you'll hear in Chewa, they get to words and they say, oh, computer. So you can actually hear, they just take English words and put them in their language instead of creating a new word. That's, that's what the, uh, the Jews and the people of the Middle East did with the word hypocrite. They just took the, the Greek word hypocrite. And, you know, hypocrite comes from the concept of actor. Uh, it's, so what it became to mean is people that were acting a role, but they didn't necessarily, that wasn't them. They were somewhere else. And Jesus, through the entire book of Matthew, is saying it's about authenticity. Be a real follower. Believe what you say. Believe what you do. All right. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. 
The whole book is about the kingdom of heaven is here. And so what Jesus is saying is the Pharisees are shutting the door and they're not letting people in at all. They're not going in either, which in theology of that time was, that's the biggest slap you could do because the Pharisees' thought was, and remember, Pharisees were probably the most popular or looked up, not popular, most respected people in Israel at the time because they were the smartest people in the law. They're the guys who studied all the time. And so what Jesus is telling, and Jesus is preaching in the temple. He's in the temple when he says this. You are shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven. So people are trying to get to heaven through your teaching. You're shutting the door. You're not going in and neither are they. And then uh, second, woe to you teacher of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So those, you know, if Jesus says something once, it's important. Uh, he says it seven times here. You might, uh, seven is also not unintentional. This is Matthew. It's Jewish. Seven's a very intentional number. You hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. When you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I mean, th- this is not... Jesus is not going to get invited to the Pharisees' next party speaking like this. Uh, and it's, once again, you got to remember, it's in the temple. The Pharisees are all around him. And they're all dressed in their finest. You know, this is Passover. This is the temple. They've got all their phylacteries and their tassels on. And Jesus is telling all the... And the, Jesus is super popular. Remember, he's so popular that they will not arrest him in the temple. We're going to get to that in two weeks because he's so popular. They're afraid of a riot if they try to arrest him in the temple. So he's got thousands of people around him as he's preaching this. Woe to you blind guides. If you say anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? If you also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by the God's throne and the one who sits on it. The Pharisees, well actually, not just the Pharisees, the Sadducees and everyone had a very structured uh, way of doing oaths. Remember, the Pharisees would not, an observant Jew would not say God's name. The fact that they created Yahweh to represent God and then they find other ways to say Yahweh so you wouldn't accidentally say, it was was a sacred name to them. And so they would have ways, by this time in Jewish history, they have ways of creating oaths. And different oaths would have like different levels of importance. And, you know, like we, you know, how, how often, you, you know, I, I, I swear in my mother's name. And you know, we say, you'll see that a lot. I swear on the Holy Bible. I, it was the same thing of they had, had a graduation. And part of it was if you swore by the temple, that meant nothing. If you swore by the gold on the temple, you're bound by that oath. What 
at this time, what they would do is the, the inside of the temple was, was gilt in gold. Is that correct? I think that was right, didn't it? Gilt. And G-I-L-T. And every year, as they got more money, they'd put more gold on it. And so, uh, remember, the temple is God's house. However, it was built by Herod the Great. So it's that plus minus. Uh, and so they would say, well, the gold of the temple is really what makes the temple important. There was so much gold in the temple that in AD 70, when the Romans conquer, when they set fire to the temple, which they did, and tore the entire city down, gold was running off, and the average soldier was trying to get all the glass, the equivalent of bowls, to catch the molten gold running off the temple at the time. That's how much gold was there. Uh, and the, and well, one of the reasons why a lot of it was destroyed because they were trying to get, right, move the stone. Right, because you can think as they set fire, all that gold kind of melted. And then, the, the, So the Romans would come in, and they, just, they tore all the stones apart to try to find the gold. Because in, in, in the Roman uh, army... Once you sack the city, you're given X number of days to steal all that you could steal. And that was part of your pay. And then after a certain amount of time, they would declare, you can't steal anymore, and we're going to rebuild the city. And so in AD 70, when they destroyed it, they, they tore everything apart, looking for anything remotely uh, valuable. And then the same thing of, if you say by the altar, it means nothing but by the gift on the altar. So they had, what he's trying to say is, don't, this comes back to being hypocrites. Be people of your word. You don't need to call in this sacred item to say, that I'm really telling the truth this time because I'm swearing by my sacrifice that's on the altar in front of the temple, in front of the gold. You know, it's a be people of your word. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be something, be who you are. Don't act like something you're not. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. One, two, three, four. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You have practiced the latter but neglected the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Uh, once again, hypocrites, number four. The Pharisees literally would, uh, because when, if you were a farmer, you had to give 10% every year as, as a tithe. The Pharisees were so concerned that the farmer that they got their food from did not tithe, that they would tithe on the food they bought, which is not required anywhere. And then uh, we actually have writings from this period of time where they're arguing about if you grow spices, do you have to tithe on the spice? And actually just after this period, uh, one of the teachers said you had to grow, you had to tithe on your mint and dill, but you did not have to tithe on your cumin. And then another teacher said, no, 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 you have to, and there was actually a significant argument around this time on which of the spices you need to uh, tithe on. And Jesus is just, this is the, you know, the dope slap up the head. Uh, he said, wait a minute, 
It's about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's not about did you tithe your cumin? Did you tithe your dill? Uh, in fact, the, a- the average Pharisee, because they wanted to make sure they didn't go under, on average paid 23% a year in tithes. There was a regular tithe, and there was a tithe in case you didn't make the right tithe, and then every third year there's another tithe, so they would just pay it every year. So the average Pharisee was paying about 23% a year to the temple. That's not, not to the Romans. The Romans would take their own money. Uh, but Jesus hammers down on It's all about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Uh, which is, you see that throughout the Old Testament. When you read the prophets, they're all saying the same thing. Uh, you know, to obey is to better than sacrifice. Go all the way back to Samuel. Same thing is do what God says. Don't ask for forgiveness later. And it's all about justice and mercy. And then uh, Jesus, this, is a, this last little thing is actually a statement from that time. And it's actually wordplay. Uh, a gnat is galma, J-A-L-M-A. A camel is gamla, G-A-M-L-A. So he's actually word playing here on the two. And, uh, but he's hitting the Pharisees where they live. Uh, in Leviticus, of all the worm, wing-swarming creatures that move on all fours, you may eat only those who have jointed legs above their feet for leaping on the ground, which is basically locust and grasshopper. Uh, all of the wing-swarming creatures with four legs become lo- loathsome to you. By these you would make yourselves unclean. Anyone touching their dead bodies would be unclean until the evening. You're coming up to Passover. The Pharisees definitely do, you do not want to be unclean during this period of time when, because if you're unclean, you can't eat the Passover. And so in this era, they actually, we actually have jugs that have a strainer in them because they wanted to make sure that gnats and flies could not get in their wine so that they would not make themselves ritualistically unclean by, like, if you poured wine into your gap and there was a gnat or a fly in it, you are unclean to the rest of the day, to the, to the Pharisees. And so what, so he makes a joke here of, you're worried about the gnat, but you're swallowing the camel. It's, it's hyperbole, but you can see how funny that is, that you're going like, I'm worried about this little teeny gnat, but just the visualization of I'm swallowing a camel. And like I said, it's, it's a wordplay in Aramaic and Hebrew. Any thoughts or questions about this? I mean, he's pretty much hammering the Pharisees, the guys who are legalistic about everything, saying you're missing the big thing, law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and you're creating all these laws that aren't leading people to that. Father, or anybody father, using that same logic, therefore, like tithing is not necessary unless you are feeling more important than tithing is just as much as faithfulness. You're using that same logic, you're basically saying, if I'm reading that right, more important matter of the law, or just as much as faithfulness, not tithing. Yes, I mean, he's saying. Don't, don't major in the minors. 
make, make the important things important. Don't make the little things important. If you get the big things right, the little things are going to be there. But if you, if you focus on the little things, you're going to miss the big picture. And they, you know, that's what he said. They spend so much time on all this law that they're missing the fact that they're, need, they're supposed to be bringing people to God, not pushing them away because, oh, you broke the law. Push you away. Oh, you're not tithing your, your spices. I mean, this is literally their spice rack. You're not tithing on your spice rack. Yeah, it is, it's like, like I said, it's, I'm sure the people laugh. Because, and it's also, we know from rabbinic writings that this was a very common saying at the time, is that when guys were trying to make a point, don't swallow the gnat, don't strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. Because, and it is funnier because it's actually in Aramaic, virtually the same word. All right. Five, six, seven. Uh, woe to you teachers, you hypocrites. You notice he starts with the same thing every time. Woe to you because you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside are full of greed and indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Little background on this. Between the Shammai and the Hallel schools, this was an argument point. When you wash the dishes, because you have to be ritualistically clean, do you wash the outside first or the inside first? They had, they had verbal arguments about this exact point. Uh, and uh, with, that just shows you the, the detail to which they got that the Shammai school said you had to wash the outside of everything first. And then the Hillel school is the other way around. And I feel like it, uh, these guys aren't the ones washing the dishes. To begin with. Oh, I guarantee they're not the ones washing the dishes. <laughs> you know? yeah. As a woman, I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. The weight of the, these laws that they're putting on it. I just, and well, that's what he said. Remember last week he said you're putting this millstone on people and crushing them. Oh, no. These guys are definitely not washing their own dishes. Uh, but like, I mean, it also makes sense. Yeah, if you wash the inside of a cup and dish, you're, you have to wash the outside because you got soap everywhere, right? But you can wash the outside without the inside being. And so, uh, but again, if the thought is what's on the inside of you is far more important than what's on the outside of you. He's preaching to the guys, you know, once again, the Pharisees are the most respected people in the land. So all the people listening to him are hearing this. That primary, the Pharisees are here hearing this. They're not super happy at this point. Uh, but the other people are listening to him, and, they're, and he is just pounding on their, essentially the Jewish superhero is the Pharisee, and he is pounding him, going like, look, it's not about the outside, it's about what's on the inside. He just says that over and over and over again. It's not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. It's not the little things, it's the big things. And so basically... What's in your heart is more important. He says that in one of his earlier teachings as well. You know, when, they, when the Pharisees ask him, why don't your apostles, like, wash your hands? And, and he talks about the exact same thing of it's what's in your heart determines what's going on, not your physical outsideness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Number six, you are like whitewashed tombs, look beautiful on the outside, but inside full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 
Again, hypocrisy. What happens at pharisaical teaching is, in, in the law of Moses, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean for seven days. And then you had to do some cleanliness activities. Again, the Pharisees, in order not to transgress the law, put an additional law on top of that. The Pharisees taught that if your shadow hit tomb or a dead person, it was the same thing as you touching them. So, our, again, we're coming up to Passover. What do we all make sure we all want to do? That we can take the Passover. So, if I'm touching a dead person, I'm down for seven days, I'm inside that right now. So what they did coming up to Passover, they would whitewash all the entrances to the tombs. And so that way, when you're coming up to Jerusalem, as you remember that map, you're crossing through the same, you're coming up from Jericho, that way you can make sure your shadow did not touch the whitewashed tomb. You could keep yourself far and away. So again, going beyond for something that is not truth, but inside, you know, I'm righteous, you know, my shadow's not touching this, but I'm full of hypocrisy. So he's just hammering the Pharisees on being hypocrites. They whitewashed it so it was visible yes. for you to see it? Yes. Or so that it was clear that if your shadow, I mean, black on white. No, it, so that you would know where it was at and you didn't accidentally, remember, you're, you're climbing up if you go just to the west of, Jer of Jerusalem, on the way down to Jericho, you're dropping all the way down to the Jordan River. So you have this thing that goes back and forth. So the tombs are built into the uh, walls. They don't dig them down like we do. They build them in the side. So you do what you didn't want to do is, man, I'm tired. Let me lean up here. Oh, I'm on a tomb. Boom, seven days, no Passover. I just spent three months getting here from Spain. Oh, I can't do the Passover because I'm ritualistically unclean for the next seven days. So they marked all that out. Uh, and then, like I said, everyone else just, you know, it's like don't touch dead people. That's the, that's the Mosaic law. The, the Pharisees are, oh, don't even let your shadow touch it because we want to make sure that you don't accidentally touch it. So they, once again, they keep going beyond, but they're missing the big picture, which is it's about drawing people to God, not creating another set of laws that, push people away because, oh, your shadow touched it. Just a quick question. Yes. So, like, if somebody knew the truth, if I had knew that that was not a real law, like, could I not do that? And, you know, if my Are shadow... Yeah, yeah, could my shadow fall on it? And I'm like, okay, you're making that crap up. Or... <laughs> Sorry, that would be what I would are. say. <laughs> but but you got but, but that, a your woman's fan that so you know, we're not going to listen well, to you anyways. Despite that part, uh, like, but it's a smart man then back then. But it's who are the smartest guys? The Pharisees. Who are the most respected people in Israel? The Pharisees. So you have the very respected guys saying, "Here's the laws," and so you know Sadducees were were priests, and unless you're born in the Levi, you weren't going to be a Sadducee. Okay. It wasn't going to happen. And so people really wanted, you know, Pharisees were it. And so you have the guys who are the, if you will, the leader of opinion in, that, in the country, in, the, in Jewish religion, saying this is the way it should be. They're a social influence, right. 
They would have Instagram and Facebook if, if they were together today. Except on Saturday, they wouldn't, but that's a whole different thing. And they'd be going like, yeah, I'll get back to the kitchen. Let's go. <laughs> Wash those pots. That's right. Le you need to leaven some stuff and get cooking. You guys are, you guys are causing trouble. There's also quite a bit of power struggle, so it's not like it's not like these are just the elders of the church, and you can right. disagree and have a meeting and talk about it. Like they'll get you stoned if you. Oh yeah, so. yeah, and you got to remember, it's like uh, everything is interrelated and familial and village-based. So it's, if you start talking out at your village, if they kick you out of your village, you're about to starve to death. I mean, this is not. I have not thought about it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a lot a lot like Sharia law in in the Muslim world now. Is that once you if you go against the religious leaders, they can bring the hammer down. And theoretically, they weren't they couldn't kill you, but as we know from Stephen, they can make it. You know, we can have an accident. You know. You know, that's why they wanted Jesus killed by the Romans, and they weren't allowed to crucify him. But Stephen, they stoned him, and I'm sure the Romans came to him and go, guys, you killed, you killed someone. They go, ah, fine us. But again, if it's a woman, it'd be, eh. Yeah, fine, that could be like a man. All right, woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophet and decorate the graves of the righteous. At this point in time, it was a big thing to build we would call them shrines to where they thought the prophets were or great rabbis or things. And then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Because all these prophets are in the tomb because they were killed by other Jews. And then they go, well, we wouldn't have done that. And then their next words out of their mouth are, I'm the descendant of pick the rabbi. Pick your grandfather, great grandfather, all of whom were the guys who killed the prophets. And they're all at this time. Remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees already got together and said, "How can we get rid of this guy? He's causing a ruckus." And Jesus looks at him and says, "Go ahead and complete what your ancestors started." He knows that they're plotting his death, and he's just telling them, "You're just like your ancestors. You killed the prophets." You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you, I am sending you prophets, sages, and teachers, which are his disciples. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So will come upon you all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah who you have murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, it will come on this generation. Basically, Abel to Zechariah, that's the beginning of the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament. Basically, all the righteous people are dead, they're on you. And he describes what they're about to do to all his disciples. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to you, how... Often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
This is the last of his public teaching right there. That verse is what everyone is saying. The Ascension Psalms, or sung during Psalm 113 to 118, is what everyone is repeating every day during the Passover. That's the end of Psalms 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what everyone is saying. That's what they're chanting in the temple as he's teaching in the temple. And then Jesus left the temple. And then the disciples come up to call his attention to its buildings, and he says, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So they're walking across the bridge. They look back at the temple. It's gorgeous. It's huge. And he basically says, it's gone. Uh, And when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, they said. They asked him, these are two questions, two different questions. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? At this period of time, there's a lot of uh, end times writings in the Jewish history. A lot of guys are writing about end times. When is the Messiah coming? When are we going to be... Well, so they ask him two questions. He answers both questions, but he doesn't answer them the way we answer them of question number one, question number two. So when you get in here, there are lots of... uh, They're interspersed among each other, what he's answering. Uh, He says, watch out, no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah. Jesus has just told them, I am the Messiah. There can only be one Messiah. You hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, the end will still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes, all these are the beginnings of the birth pains. Then you'll be handed over and persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At the time, many will turn away from faith and betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this is the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as testament to all nations, and then the end will come. So he's talking about end times now. So the end of time, not when will the temple be torn down? Well, the, uh, when, the, when the armies came towards Jerusalem, they remembered this passage a lot of them, and they interpreted that. So the Christians that were in Jerusalem, for the most part, went north to Galilee and Tiberias. They remembered this passage, and they got right. out of Dodge right then. Right. And so now he's talking about when is, when is Jerusalem about to be overthrown. When you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, which is Daniel 9, 11, and 12. Uh, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let, those, let no one in the housetop go down to take anything in the house. Uh, let the one in the field don't go back. Uh, basically what he's saying here is it's going to happen really, really fast. When it's time to go, go. Uh, the, when you look at Daniel, we don't have time to get into the whole premillennialist, amillennialist, postmillennialist interpretations of Daniel. Uh, but basically he says bad things are coming for Jerusalem. 
And then he kind of jumps back into uh, when is he coming back. Uh, if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. There he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Basically what he's saying here is if Jesus is not coming back in secret. For as the lightning comes from the east, is visible even the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the car, there's a carcass, vultures gather. That's what I like about that one. Basically what he's saying, it's obvious when I'm coming back. It's like a lightning bolt. It's, we've, all been, we've all been out. When there's a dead thing, can you, t- can you tell where it's at a long way away? You see the vultures circling, right? It's not a subtle thing. It's not like, hey, Jesus is coming back. He's going to be in this room tomorrow. You know, be in the room. He said it's going to be widely known. No one's going to be able to deny it. Uh, and then more Daniel and the Son of Man comes in great glory. He will send his angels the loud trumpet that gathers elect from the four winds from the one end of heavens to the other. So what he's telling them in this story is when I come back, it's going to be obvious. It's not going to be subtle. There, you know, and there's the whole thing is there's going to be other people claiming to be the Messiah, etc. And he also tells them when is the temple going to be down? When, when you when you you will know when the temple is going to be down, and when it when it starts happening, exactly what Steve was saying, don't stay in the city, get out. Because the usual thing in those days was when there was famine, when there was an attack, you ran to the walled city, and Jerusalem's walled. And so he said, don't do that. When it's coming, you need to go into the hills. You need to scatter. You need to leave the city. Because he knows the end is coming for Jerusalem, which it does in A.D. 70, which is when Jesus is talking roughly 40 years later. And then he ends this with, uh, as you learn the lesson from the fig tree, as soon as its twigs get tender and leaves come out, you know summer is near. When the fig tree blooms, it's summer. It's springtime coming into summer. Even so, when you see all these things, you know it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away till all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So what he's telling them about the temple is... This generation, the guys who are hearing him, people of that generation will be alive when it happens, which it does in AD 70, so 40 years later. And most, most of the apostles were probably still alive at the time. And a lot of the people who were listening to him, who were his disciples, not, remember, he had, it was not just the apostles around him, all his disciples are with him. They hear this. And a lot of them were still around when Jerusalem fell. I remember Matthew's writing this either just before the fall of Jerusalem or just after the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, but if he wrote it before the fall of Jerusalem, there's a rebellion going on, and uh, the Romans are now have surrounded Jerusalem. Any questions? That's chapter 23, 24. His last public teaching, and now he's going to spend time pouring into the disciples to get them ready for the bad thing that's about to occur that they keep telling him is not going to occur. I think we're probably out of time. Yep, there you go. All right. I think Stephen's next week. He's got, he's got the end of the book. Two more weeks. <laughs>